2: Welcome everybody to Nessun Dorma. your chat about 80s and 90s football. We're back fairly soon after the last episode because, a bit like Liverpool in 2020, we're probably due some back-to-back stuff to start again. I'm Lee and joining me are two people who will have absolutely zero time for that happening to that club. First of all, it's Mr Rob Smyth. Hello Rob.
1: And Liverpool doing well? I'm (laughs) Uh
2: nice. And Mr Gary Naylor.
0: Well, he only beat us
2: 1-0. It's true.
0: Uh, and we join. Sorry yeah. to
2: talk about modern football, everybody, but we joined... <laughs> this is being recorded the day after uh, Everton throwing away a two-and-a-lead in the 94th uh. minute, Gary. It <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> uh, was ever thus. Ancelotti will sort it, I'm sure. Yeah.
0: Carlo Magnifico.
2: Right then. So if you want to get in touch with us, we're at Nessondorma on Twitter or there's contact at We are on ACast and Apple Podcasts and lots any if you put Dorma podcast into Google, you'll find us one way or another. Tell your friends about us. We have also got our Patreon, patreon.com slash Dorma, where you get a few extra episodes and you give us a bit of your support and become a member of the club and that's really, really appreciated. I'd like to offer an apology to Mr. Guy Lewis who actually signed up for this and I forgot to read it out last week. So my apologies, Guy, but thank you very, very, very much. Moving to business then, it's the usual thing. You know what to expect from us now. We've got a bit of a big, long feature discussion and then we've got an underrated player and a journeyman of the week. In terms of the big discussion later, we'll be taking you back to 1994-95. won't do the full... Well, I'll come on to what we're going to talk about, but we'll leave that for now. I'll, I'll tease you with that one for now. But first, it's time for another underrated consideration, and this week, it's Mr. Niall Quinn. Niall Quinn was born the 6th of October 1966 in Dublin. He was a more than useful Gaelic footballer and hurler in his youth and turned down a professional Aussie rules contract to pursue a career in football. I wonder what the pay's like in comparison between those two. Any of you two got an insight into contracts and Aussie rules? <laughs> yeah. No. Any listeners got it? If so, write into us. Super Junior grade football and signed professionally with Arsenal in 1983, made his debut versus Liverpool in 85-86, scoring in a 2-0 win And before breaking through under George Graham. When you look at Niall Quinn, uh, Gary, I mean, you, you have a sense of a memory of the mid-80s better than me and Rob, what with you yep. actually being an adult at the time. <laughs> Do you... Um, it, it, is he is he associated strongly with Arsenal in your mind?
0: Well, not particularly. In in my mind, eye, I've got him playing more for kind of Manchester City uh, in 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 memory. But that may be because I was in the pub most of the time he was playing at, <laughs> uh, for Arsenal. So uh, my memory um, sometimes it's quite good and sometimes there are sort of uh, blocked out spaces. Um, but it, it feels like a kind of ever present. You know when you when you put the telly on and there was a match on. Um, you would sort of look up and say, "Oh God, there's Niall Quinn. He's playing," and um, he seemed to to play for a lot of clubs and for for a long time. Um, and I think one of the best things about Niall Quinn is that he always got in the game. You know, in in some ways, he was like um, his kind of his follower or or someone who took on the kind of mantle of someone who uh shouldn't really have been that good as a professional footballer, but was in in Peter Crouch. And it, it wasn't so much that you you, you saw them because they were they were big men. Um, it's it's somehow that they they got themselves involved in the game. They got on the end of corners. They were the target men, and so on. So, I think now Quinn's career um, as such, sort of in my mind, sort of is is one sort of endless set of kind of World Cup matches, matches for different clubs. When he's on the end of a corner, or he's holding the ball up, or he's um, doing uh, some of the best post match interviews that uh, you, you ever heard in the uh, mid nineties.
2: So then he was, so he was at Arsenal until they signed Alan Smith. And basically, so that was 87. And he was reduced to a bit of a bit part role there for a few years and handed a transfer request in 89. And as you mentioned, Gary, then went to Man City, where he kind of looms large in the mind. Spent six years at City, 76 goals in 240 games. And what, it was a while he was at City, that the whole Niall Quinn's disco pants became a thing. And I didn't know this. Did you know this? that He, he, he had a fight with Steve McMahon because they had a row over who was harder. Well, and then I think Quinn probably, knocked him out in a boxing match.
0: Well, it might only be the three of us who haven't had a fight with Steve McMahon, <laughs> so it, it doesn't surprise me.
2: And he, he later released a single, single while he was at Sunderland. So, singer, target man, boxer, <laughs> raconteur, <laughs> post-match interview specialist, mullet wearer. He left City in 95, 96. As you said, Gary, his career... Was far longer than you give it credit for. He was about twenty years, really, at all if not a bit longer. All
0: in all, transfer. Well, he's to... a classic. He's a classic example, and there's probably a few around then and around now. In that, he never had any pace to lose, so they can go on and play quite a long time because these guys, um, who whose game is based more on. Uh, the intelligence of their positioning and their ability to to see a pass and to find space and to put themselves about, um, they they often uh, can play well into their late thirties if they're fortunate with injuries.
2: Did you? I mean, intelligent with his positioning, Rob? Would you would you associate that with Quinn?
1: Yeah, I do. I think I agree with Gary. I think his best years really. He was good at City, but his best years really his thirties at Sunderland. Uh, most of them with Kevin Phillips. I think he was a really intelligent player, actually. Um, in terms of the way he used his body as well, the way he kind of jockeyed defenders, uh, brilliant use of the chest. I know it sort of sounds ridiculous. It was sort of said about Maren Fellaini a lot, jokingly, but actually Quinn was brilliant with his chest. Um, The other thing about him, I thought he was a really smart player, definitely. I mean, even down to when he played in the World Cup in 2002 and you've got these world-class defenders who just didn't know what to do with them and they end up just sort of, clawing around them and giving away fouls and penalties but he was also he um he had a really good portfolio of lobs and chips which you don't really associate with him but if you do I there are a few that come to mind one against Leeds City I think one against Spurs for Sunderland another one probably the game I associate with most is when Quinn and Phillips absolutely ransacked a good Chelsea side, at Stadium of Light in 99. Their first game when they were promoted, they'd been slaughtered 4-0 by Chelsea. <clears throat> the return match was before Christmas and um, they were 4-0 up in about 40 minutes, I think. Phillips scored, I think, two. Quinn got one, but they were involved in all the goals. And I think Desai went off that game. And there were kind of suggestions that he basically just like went off because he wanted a mercy um but yeah i do think he was a, a very a very good player actually very underrated particularly towards the end it. i didn't see that much of him at Arsenal. he was a bit popular city he was sporadically difficult i mean as somebody who watched a lot of man united games he could be a an absolute nightmare for Palace. to arguably gave Palace more problems than any domestic um british or irish forward anyway um but obviously you remember him most for his partnership with kevin phillips um yeah, I thought he was a really, really clever player. And yeah, just not like, I, I, yeah, positioning partly and also just knowing exactly what he could get away with and what defenders could or, more to the point, couldn't get away with and kind of just manipulating that very well. Um, so yeah, I thought he was a terrific player. In my yeah, mind, it, he wasn't that, that boxing
2: thing is interesting because in my mind, he never, I mean, obviously, he could, he could look after himself, but he didn't, he didn't seem like he was an obvious hard player.
1: No, I don't think he bullied defenders. I think he more just kind of manipulated them and, in 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 the context of his skills, almost outsmarted him as well. I mean, there are some. You know, there are there are times when you wouldn't want to be, <laughs> if you're a, a even a six foot defender, and you saw someone stand across up to the back post, and you saw him charge at you, think fuck that. But um, <laughs> and he did score some kind of classic immense headers that you would expect of a tall striker, as the famous one at to win at St James's Park. Um, but you're right. I don't think of him as somebody. But which I actually don't really see the. Comparison with Crouch too much, but I see it in that sense that he was, he was tall but and kind of imposing in that sense. But actually, he wasn't particularly. He didn't particularly use strength to bully defenders. It was more kind of he was just more awkward. I would say. i yeah.
0: um, yeah. i I'd, I'd, I'd suggest there was something about Quinn. Uh, in some ways, he was an anti-Duncan Ferguson because, you know, Duncan Ferguson didn't speak to the press, and when he when he did, the few times you heard Duncan Ferguson, it was, you know, the the growl of Barlini was what uh, came out of his mouth. <laughs> although, of course, both are articulate and intelligent men, but Quinn, because he had that soft Irish accent and he was avuncular and self-deprecating and all these kind of things, I think he got away with a bit on the field that the likes of Duncan Ferguson didn't. And although, Yeah, that's possibly true. I think what Quinn did, and he was one of the the first players I can recall doing it, although I'm sure that, that players have done it since time immemorial, is I think he just had that ability to nudge the defender off balance as the ball was was in the air on the way to him because defenders you're absolutely right uh, Rob they they couldn't seem to get near him at times and I think he, he just sort of put an elbow into the ribs or he'd trod on a toe or he'd find a way of just getting his his shoulder into the under the chin of a defender or something like this and defenders always seem to be off balance where he was on balance when he was getting towards the ball and I think you know, that's obviously good centre-forward play, but I think some of it was just looking and saying, oh, it's old Nile," you know, old Nile. he's not mm. going to be doing stuff like that. But of course, you don't get to play centre-forward for, as you say, the thick end of 20 years without knowing a few tricks of the trade. Yeah, yeah.
1: and no, I completely agree with that. So he had that
2: great time at Sunderland. Just to, he went to Sunderland in 1996, 1.3 million, and had that, as you said, uh, Rod, the best spell of his career uh, with Kevin Phillips, He made his final appearance for Sunderland in October 2002, shortly after his 36th birthday, which would have put him being 17 when he signed for Arsenal, 17, 18. So he got hoovered up quite early from from Ireland, didn't he? Um, After retirement, he received an honorary MBE because he donated his testimonial earnings to charity.
0: That was a big thing at the time because um, there was talk (laughs) about testimonials because they're tax-free, of course and there there was a lot of talk about taxing them or looking at them uh because players were beginning to earn big money but i think um and there's a there's a parallel with uh, other elements of players uh on fi- uh, off-field uh, activities here um I think that he was the first who said, "Look, I'm I'm giving it away here," because nobody wanted to be the first to say that. Because obviously, the people that come later, who perhaps haven't been earning for as long or as or as much money as Niall Quinn. Uh, they might not want to give it away to to charity. But it was it was quite a big thing where he, he you know he he turned down a, a million quid, and you know that was a that was a lot of money even in 2002. Players were were earning big money, but not. Astronomical sums as they are now, and that was quite a big thing to do that, and it it led to other players then forming kind of partnerships uh, for their testimonials and stuff like this, where they don't perhaps give all of the money away, but they give a proportion away, and you know I think that honorary MBE was was well earned by him. Um, yes, the uh, the totem pole became a totem of uh, football at that time. Oh, very good. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hey. He oh. actually
1: pissed pissed some people off with that testimony. There's a story, Michael Gray was on the Under the Cosh podcast recently which is absolutely brilliant. Um, and he was scheduled to have his testimonial before Quinn. I I think I'm getting this right. Quinn asked if he could go first, but what he didn't tell Gray was that he was going to give it all to charity. <laughs> so by then, Mickey Gray's then comes and he screwed, basically, yeah, because I you know, I, I, to say he was pissed off is maybe, maybe overstated, but yeah. Um, it's quite a, quite a good story. Uh, Everybody after us immediately looks like a bit of a twat for not giving their money away, yeah. don't they? So there's there's always been a bit of cynicism about Quinn, like knowing how to uh, play PR games. Whether that's fair or not, I don't know. I interviewed him once for the Guardian, actually, and I must say. Oh, uh, right. Only on the phone. But he was absolutely brilliant. He was really interesting and likeable. But maybe, maybe that's a trick. Who knows? Maybe I'm a gullible clown. But um, yeah, I don't know. So this point, about kind of un- like- this point about being
2: underrated is what we're asking here, is he an underrated player? But before we get into that, I suppose, why would he be considered to be underrated? There's the whole he looks a bit tall and awkward thing. But actually, there's a point at which he doesn't have a major defining achievement or medal to his name, apart from winning the championship with Sunderland, which is obviously a big deal there, but it's not it's not something. And also, he, he doesn't loom large in the Republic's World Cup. But is that unfair as well? Because he did score... A pretty important goal in 1990. Well, he's for got example. he's
1: got the worst goal in the history of football. <laughs> yeah, in yes, 1990, and yet it's, one of the it's most glorious, the most important goal yeah, in the history exactly. of Irish football. Yeah, the funny thing is that I do think from is having a big part of the World Cup just because of 2002 when he came on as sub and was influential. I think he made the equaliser against Germany. I think he won the penalty with which they equalized against Spain, or maybe it was the one they missed before that. But um, but you're right; he did miss out on eighty eight and ninety four, really. Uh, and I think I think you're right. But then you wonder. You know, it feels like his defining achievement in many ways was his um, his partnership with Phillips, which obviously then encompassed uh, winning the uh, championship, but also they finished seventh back to back in the first two seasons, and actually that kind of doesn't flatter them because for big parts of those seasons especially the second one they were top three top four for for long parts of the season so i've never really thought of it about not having a defining achievement. it just feels like you could say that about a lot of players really i think it's more just to do with his the cliche of you know tall center Mm. forward and also maybe the fact that irish center forward as well it kind of i don't know subconscious associations of gay i don't know but um yeah, I just think he was underestimated generally. And also because I think he improved quite stealthily. So the, the early quid, particularly at Arsenal and to a lesser extent at City, was, was so raw and could be devastating, but could also be pretty shit. And I think by the time he got kind of developed suddenly, he was such a rounded, smart, uh, intelligent, experienced player. But I think it kind of crept up on people a bit. There was no kind of... Moment, you thought, shit, he's actually quite good. I feel like I only appreciated, kind of looking back at his career, how how good a player he was, particularly his thirty. I mean, he turned thirty in ninety six, I think, um, and for the next five, four years, maybe four, or
0: five years. Um, yeah,
1: I think those were his his peak years.
0: I mean, in some ways, he was just seen as slightly old fashioned even then, wasn't? Wasn't he? Cause, oh yeah, definitely, you know, yeah. You know, the Phillips, Premier League era. Uh, yeah, Phillips and Quinn were, were a throwback to kind of Toshak and Keegan. And then, you know, that's um, that's not to to flatter Kevin Phillips, who was extremely effective uh forwards and, and goal scorer. But the you know, the, the big man and the little man, one feeding off the other, did seem like, you know, a kind of it didn't seem like the kind of brave new world that was that was uh well more than emerging, which is fully flourishing with all the foreign players coming into the Premier League. And here you've got a couple of uh of Anglophones, if if not entirely uh, Brits, who were um, were were you know given the the old turn another run round the paddock, but um, as you say, uh, for the connoisseur, I think if you watched Quinn as a centre forward, I remember reading somewhere about uh, a young player being told to just watch Steve Bold in a match. Mm. Uh, another man who was uh, very experienced, didn't have a great deal of pace, but who made up for it in footballing intelligence. And he was a, a young defender and said, just don't watch the game. Just watch where Steve Bold goes any time. And I think the same could have been said of any young centre-forward. Just watch where Niall Quinn goes all the time. And you'd learn a lot about centre-forward play. Uh, from him but you're right I don't think there is a, a, a kind of defining achievement there's no there's no um, sort of running round with a trophy that, that you know would uh, appear on the testimonial program cover or anything like that um, but partly because you know he's remained in media and obviously as a some kind of executive wasn't he at Sunderland was he involved in the was he the front man for the owners or something like that? I'm not quite sure. Um, but he's he stayed in the public eye for some time. And he pretty much looks the same as he did when he was playing, which uh, <laughs> always helps to keep you in the, uh, in the front of uh, attention. So, um, yeah, I think he, he probably is underrated. And I think that, um, you know, we wouldn't be on the list of the top 10 centre-forwards in the Premier League, but if, you, if you're if you looking at the top 10 centre-forwards who are English or Irish over the last uh, 20 years, I think he, he might scrape in there, or he, he'd certainly have a shout of that, and you know, that's no no bad thing to leave the game with.
2: It's that scoring record thing, isn't it, that always kind of haunts people who play up front when your scoring record doesn't, you know, in this day of stats and all you've got is to look at his scoring record people go, well, he can't have been very good because he didn't score many goals because people don't actually apply any context, do they? In terms of... um, do, What was his his role in against United, Rob? Because he's got a bit of a funny relationship with United, fans, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, I think... Well, partly because he scored a lot of goals and played for City, he scored a lot in the early Premier League years. Um, and yeah, Palace often had a hard time against him. There's that f- that famous, wonderful picture when he misses a sitter at Old Trafford in 1995. was doing wanker signs behind him. And yeah, so. <laughs> it just it's just you could picture you could you could pick so many characters from that picture. It's, it's beautiful, and I think so. There was a bit of kind of I think I think contempt because he was a City player as much as anything. Um, but then, obviously, he had this part in the Keane saipan incident, um, what was and I that? think that—well, no one really knows because there's so many conflicting stories. But when right. Keane left the World Cup in 2002, mm. um, Quinn was quite kind of public about saying that he crossed the line and so on. But yeah. then also, he what was he said? It was the, the most surgical dismantling of a human being I've ever seen, or something like that. Talking about Keane's. Uh, having a go at mccarthy but then when um when uh, def- early on the next season Keane was sent off playing at Sunderland uh for elbowing jason McAteer, and it was all like all related to his book and everything and was involved there, and i think united fans disliked him for that and he was seen as kind of sanctimonious and he had this nickname of mother Teresa and everything <laughs> like i said whether that's fair or not i don't know and obviously him and King eventually patched it up um Or maybe Keane called him Mother Teresa, in fact, I don't know. Um, But I think that, I think it was more, I think at first at City, it was more just kind of vague attempt. Because City was so crap back then, it was more more, uh, kind of sneering. And um, yeah, and that picture, that picture with the wank size isn't really because it's Quinn, it's just because it's a City Blows Mr. Sitter. Um, So. Nothing. But I think it was more the Keane thing, really, was that he was disliked for a while after that. no, Nothing... yeah, he wasn't that he like, hated like he wasn't like hating like Alan yeah. Shearer or anything like that. Nothing shows
2: more about the change in British culture, right? Than comparing that picture we've just talked about with mm. the picture of Delhi Alley running in front of all the Chelsea fans last year. <laughs> because because in the picture from 1995-96, everyone is doing V's and Wanker signs. Mm. And in the Chelsea picture, everyone's doing the bird. <laughs> so oh, basically, dear, oh, yeah. British-based hand insult gestures have shifted hugely in the past 20, 25 years, and I, for one, am not happy about it at all. <laughs> so yeah, we probably are saying that Niall Quinn is underrated, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think as much as anything for those Sunderland years. Uh, I think that whole Sunderland team's underrated, actually, but that's another, that's another pod, maybe. That was the Michael Gray... Yeah, I mean, it was quite a Phillips, really, quite but a Phillips Peter right Reid. And they had a lot of, um, well, they had Steve Bold for a while, Emerson Tone, people like that, Michael Gray. Dickie um, Ord. Gavin McCann. Oh, Dick, oh, he was slightly before then. <laughs> yeah, was, My mate so. at university always went on about him. Geez, Dickie Ord. Who needs um, Eric Gavin McDowell
2: We've got Dickie Ord as the CEO. The,
1: yeah. <laughs> they had Gavin McCann, who was a decent player. He actually played pretty yeah, well a few yeah. times. And he outplayed Vieira. They drew at Highbury one year. So I think they, they might have come from two little downs to draw to all, but he outplayed Vieira in that game.
2: But yeah, who good side? McAnally put Everton, Gary. Yeah, and he did.
0: Everton, yeah, and, and Villa, and Villa, I think, as well. Um, yeah, not absolutely certain. But um, some of them were quite a progressive club in those days. I mean, it's hard after the shambolic sort of last five years or so they've had. But you know, that was a that was a big move to to go to the Stadium of Light, and you know, we can think it's a bit ostentatious to call it that but i think if i think if it was my club and they they called their new fifty thousand seater stadium the stadium of light i think i'd be pretty happy with that um quinn scored the
2: first goal there of course
0: he did score mm. the first goal and you know they had the documentary with uh with peter reed and you know their players always seem to be uh open to uh to to media interviews and stuff we like was that fucking <laughs> piss, <you know. laughs> i mean they were they, they they were a quite progressive club and in some ways that makes it even and you know they did they did well i mean they were they were a, they were a top half uh premier league side for not for just one or two seasons but for quite a while and um you know i think it's easy to forget that in the light of the kind of uh despair of the the last few years there
2: so there you go that leaves us that leaves us it with Niall Quinn. Last question quickly. Have you watched the new Sunderland documentary by the way? Mm, Sunderland no. till I die on That's really good though. I've watched it. It's great. It's it's pretty depressing all around for everybody involved. But yes, it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Anyway, oh, so yeah. now then let's move on to 1994-95 which we're going to talk about now which was became known well in some quarters as the season of sleaze. 442 called it the year that football went mad. It was used um, in here, but was also already in use in papers around March this time because the incidents were kind of racking up. So we're going to talk about some of these incidents and a little bit about the season as well. Um, basically, just to, for context, if you remember, sleeves was being used a lot about British politics at the time with with the Conservative government at the time and. Was it Cash for Questions at this time? And Jonathan Aiken was this time? And all that kind of stuff. And I I distinctly remember the big note, the, you know, we won't be doing sleaze thing being a huge part of Tony Blair's pitch as he led up to that sort of uh, becoming the new PM, obviously. Um, I mean, a question as we move through, and maybe we can do a bit of analysis of this as we go through for each event, whether a lot of what we're going to talk about could be classed as sleaze, more than just stuff that happens, but we'll talk about as we go through. Before we do that, we're... Where where were you in the winter of nineteen ninety four ninety five, Gary?
0: Um, I think I was doing a lot of trips to Europe because I was on a um, I was on a succumbent around that time to. Uh, uh, Council of Europe uh, program. So, or was it? Was it an EU? And I think that was an EU program. Uh, so it's back and forth to Brussels a bit, and um, and lots of other places uh, in Europe, and in the pub, and enjoying sort of my last hurrah before uh, parental responsibilities supervened. Uh, what I wasn't doing so much of is uh, is watching football on on telly. Um, so this is this is one of the areas where. I'm a little short of kind of first hand knowledge. I did go to a few matches at that time. Uh, I was keeping up with the politics though, and it's, I was thinking about this, and it is a, I think it might, well, one way of, of understanding sleeves as a kind of concept is that it might mark a kind of change in, in British uh, attitudes, really, because I think until then, um, there was you know there were scandals of course and private eye were, were full of them, but I think it, it, it marked a time when when the public at large, rather than the kind of YOY merchants in the tabloids and uh, Private Eye, really started to take note of kind of political sleeves, and there was a kind of loss of confidence in the great and good that um I think sort of resonates down the last 25 years. And I think to some extent we've not worked our way through and it's only been amplified with the keyboard warriors of social media and the condemnation and stuff that comes around these times. And I don't think football helped because, you know, the two sort of things that lead the news bulletins are politics and then and then uh, we go to the sports news and football. And both were kind of reinforcing the other with issues of behaviour and ethics and stuff like this coming through and it it almost it, it wasn't quite a nervous breakdown and it did lay the uh, the ground for Tony Blair to put some very clear blue water between himself and um and John Major who himself wasn't that much of a sleaze merchant uh, but later we find out um was having a kind of extramarital affair that he was keeping quiet. so got it, he was. Yeah, yeah <laughs> he was, which uh, still seems amazing now, um, <laughs> never mind at the time. Um, but, yeah, I think I think it was a kind of cultural shift that um, that we can look kind of before Sleaze and after Sleaze and see two different kind of attitudinal profiles on the part of the British public. And I say I think that's spiralled in lots of ways since...
2: Well, I don't know about you, Rob, I'm not going to give that uh, level of insight because I was mostly pissed in 1994 and ninety five. So I wasn't thinking that deeply about anything. It was my first year at uni. Was it first year? Yeah, it was my first year at uni in Middlesbrough. So I was there basically getting a little bit drunk. I definitely maybe had just come out, obviously, from Oasis, which was kind of the big event yeah. in my life at that time.
0: Yeah, I saw them at, um, where was that? big uh outdoor gig i nebworth. went on too long nebworth that's right i went, to went nebworth on, on too long on, <laughs> <laughs> on the motorbike uh, well, I'm, I'm not used to i'm not used to these all days i've never been to a festival yet and um you know i've been there three hours and it was still two hours before the chemical brothers came on so um you know i was thinking when are we going to get to the headliners you know
1: can i just say i love the optimistic use of the word yet and i've never been to a festival yet less, <laughs> yeah, less, yeah. yeah less, well, there's never been more to pick from, Gary,
2: to be honest. Is it, there are proper well, like old man festivals that we can go to, like the Green uh, Man and stuff, which is all I very calm.
0: Both my brothers go to a number of them, and now my uh, younger boy, Linus, is is going to plenty as well. So I I feel rather like um, video games, that this is an area of life that I should probably explore, but I'm not going to live long enough to do so.
2: Speaking of football in the 90s, sorry, I'm slightly slide-tracking. We'll come back to Gary. Did you play and have you played Championship Manager?
0: No, I, I've, I've almost. The last kind of computer game I played was probably Space Invaders in the pub in 1981. And, um, because taking I Everton to the Champions League anything.
2: final in a fantasy role play it seems like right up your street and it would have been eminently possible. Well, so
0: it, it might be. There might be a few sort of Italian film stars involved in that because it could only be a dream rather than a, <laughs> a, a reality. No, I, I, I dare not get involved because um, even at that time, well, at that time before before taking on the responsibilities of being a parent, I, I didn't have a great deal of time. And after after two kids came along in 97 and 2000 i had even less time and now i've got so many other things i want to do that i i kind of dare not get involved um it's a bit like i I may have mentioned this before it's a bit like sort of the sopranos and the wire i i dare not watch the first episode because i might have to watch all of them (laughs) and and how long is that going to take me and how much is it going to stop me doing the other things so never played football manager never played any of those things
2: Right now we've got that out of the way. We can talk about the uh, we can talk about the actual season. Yes. So we had this season of sleaze, the the the, the year that football went mad. Just to give you a quick chronology of of how this kind of panned out, and of course we'll talk a little bit about what the football's like coming into this. But in terms of the chronology of these things as they happened, there was a match fixing allegation in the Sun on the tenth of November. Paul Merson came out to tell all kinds of stories about himself in November. Eric Cantona's. Uh, Kung Fu kick happened pretty much uh, near enough to when we're recording this. There was an England-Island game that got abandoned in Dublin, which we'll talk about. George Graham was sacked. Um, Chris Armstrong became the first player to be banned for drugs, to be tested for drugs and banned. Um, Dennis Wise had a bit of a problem with a taxi or a taxi driver and then there's also some issues around the FA Cup semi-final and Crystal Palace. So some of you listening may remember a lot of that. Some of you might not remember any of it. Some some of it we're going to go through a bit of, bits of it anyway. This is coming into this season was when was this when the Premier League really started to feel Premier League-y? because you had Blackburn Rovers have paid 5 million for Chris Sutton, Andy Cole uh, transferred in January for 6
1: million. I um, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't, personally I think um the very fact we're talking about such kind of tawdry <laughs> shite is quite nice. To me, this is the kind of last season of the old era in a way. Right. Because the one interesting thing about this season of is it was it was just in isolation, really. I don't know where. Okay, because by the summer of '95, everything was optimistic. again. Now this is partly cultural, and you know, everyone was getting pissed all the time, but. Rude Hullick came, and there were loads of other good foreign players. Yiboa, oh, Yeboah came halfway through '94 '95, but then there were all the Liverpool youngsters, um, David Ginla, Newcastle was, a, and the mood changed completely. And Mike talks about this quite a lot. That, and also the TV money suddenly went through the roof. that '95 6 in many ways is the first season right. of the kind of shiny, um, happy, media-friendly Premier League.
2: Having said that, in this season, Paul Kitson did go to Newcastle for £2.2 <laughs> 2 I mean, you know, these are big, big things, aren't they? Lowest um, attendance well, is, is a bit sorry, of what, what for I would you. Say, okay, oh, go
0: God, what I was going to say, to just add to add to Rob's point there, and I, I think it's a point well made, is that to me, the Premier League really takes off when we get the influx of foreign players. So instead of there being one or two kind of um ornaments in teams or or kind of strange names in teams or or you know absolute superstars like like Canton, all of a sudden there were teams with four or five, six or seven foreign players in. And that to me is when the, the Premier League feels different to the old first division. And as Rob says, it's probably the season after rather than 94, 95.
2: Bit of trivia for you. The lowest attendance in the 1994-95 season in the Premier League. Who wants to stab at how many it was? 200,000
1: um, Wimbledon v. someone. It's
2: 5,200 and a bit. 5,268. Wim- Wimbledon versus City in March.
1: Why is that high, actually? Because they had a couple of lower ones, I think. Some- yeah. That uh, might
2: have been. The contract, low- too, that was this
0: no, season. The- might have been more, the- yeah. The lowest crowd ever was at Selhurst Park for Wimbledon against Everton, and it was just over 2,000 on a filthy <laughs> night. Um, and I know because I. And you were there, go- weren't you? No, nope, oh. but my brother was, <laughs> and he'll tell you just how grim that that night was. Um, he was, he, and what will be a record that presumably will last forever, unless there's matches played behind closed doors. And let's face it, uh, the clubs have more physios now um, than uh, than would be required to beat a crowd of two thousand. Uh, yeah, he was there.
2: I mean, you just don't think it's a proper Premier League season because Blackburn nicked the title off you, Rob. <laughs> I'm calling that out right now. Uh, <laughs> so first of all so let's talk about these events as they happen so there's all this football going on and it's it's building or Klinsman's arrived and it's building to something quite exciting if you want to talk about the more foreign import type plays we've got a couple of episodes where there's an episode where we look at the opening season when Ravenelli the opening weekend of the season Ravenelli arrived We've also got the famous five-episode earlier in this season. We've also got a double episode on world record transfers being broken. So there's loads of stuff back there about foreign players and big, big transfers and, and everything else and, and that developing Premier League, as we just talked about. So let's talk about what happens this season. Uh, let's talk about Dennis Wise, because <laughs> we all love talking about Dennis Wise, don't we? Basically going into a bit of a rumble with a taxi driver. He, well, it, it, some something about his, the taxi driver hitting his wife with the, the door. Long story short, it seems he punched the glass in the taxi, hit the fella, got convicted. Three months in prison in order to pay £1,600 compensation. Sentence overturned on appeal. And there was an outcry within the game over the severity of it after the trial. Tony Banks, MP, appeared as a character witness for Dennis Wise and later laid into the judge for seeking celebrity with the decision. Wise was stripped of the Chelsea captaincy. By I but then it effectively got it back. I suppose the big question for me is, there's a lot of, there's a, not a question, an observation. There's a lot of things like this that happen, and this is one of those perfect examples of how much everything has changed in a relatively short period of time. Because everything you just reeled off there, an MP appearing as a character witness, people going mad because Sunday was you know, given a sentence for leathering somebody. Captaincy's not being stripped. Well, am I being, am I, am I saying, has it changed that much? What do we think?
1: Yeah, probably. It'd probably go the other way now, wouldn't it? There'd be a demand for him to be <laughs> s- sacked <laughs> and put in a clink, put in a clink for 12 months. Never play yourself.
2: football ever again. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard to know, but um, yeah, it's difficult because also it's wise and, and generally i'd have sympathy for someone even if they make a mistake but with him i'd happily make an exception so i don't really <laughs> in a way where she had I'd done a little stretch um yeah i don't know, i think you're i think back then there was definitely more of a kind of oh it's not open-minded because that makes it sound like a good thing but it would, they're, they're, people yeah more was just let go generally you know it's just just larks, he's just beating the shit out of a taxi driver. Probably deserved it, probably getting lads, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, but then again, I don't like the current culture of persecuting everyone for putting the wrong hashtag or something, so you know, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, It was a big thing though, it was a huge thing at the time. Yeah. And he
2: was in the England squad, of course, as well, and Venables, did Venables Venables... take him out of the squad for that game in Dublin, which we'll talk about
1: later on? Well, what he did, I'm not sure whether what happened was, but I think that was partly why... um, Letitia ended up playing at that Dublin game, which was the end of his career under Venables. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, well,
0: my memory of it was, and I don't want to sound sort of overly scouse here, although <laughs> it's never stopped me before, is that the whole thing was a kind of confection of cockniness uh, there's Scribes <laughs> West, there's el Tell, there's Dennis Wise, there's Tony Banks, there's Glenn Hoddle. Uh,
2: Eric Hall, uh, Monster Monster. Eric
0: Hall, yeah. Monster Monster. And if you remember that Viz at the time had a character called Cockney Wonka, yes, and I remember <laughs> thinking, Dennis Wise cockney wanker and whenever any of this stuff came on it was the same with eric hall as well i managed to just screen it out i had a kind of button i would press in my brain and it turned into the teacher in peanuts cartoons if you remember in charlie brown he'd hear the teacher and all it would be here would... <laughs> so as soon as the words dennis wise or uh, tony banks or eric hall came on that's that's all i heard so um yeah, uh let the Cockneys get on with being Cockneys as far as I'm concerned.
2: is the the thing the other thing Eric called a celebrity agent. That you know, that's the first I mean,
0: was thing. It- he was everywhere with that bloody big cigar um, You know, he was on late night chat shows He was on early evening chat shows He was on radio programmes Whenever you turned it on, there he was And the only thing that Eric Hall ever talked about Was, of course, Eric Hall And he, he was, was a music guy initially And uh, then he got very ill And, um, you know, we must we must uh, mention that But, oh dear, he was absolutely ubiquitous for a while He was a ludicrous
1: arsehole, basically <laughs> <laughs>
0: because the
2: thing is I mean people talk about agents being a scourge of the game and you know Brian Clough's famous line when, when I was in football the only agent we had was 007 and he just shagged women not entire football clubs and uh, the, the, the the I don't I, in my mind has there been another celebrity everyone knows agents are there and everyone says they're a, a bad thing no, not everyone.
0: Not everyone, Lee. I'm, I'm a big supporter of agents, and I'll no, tell you I don't why.
2: Actually, I don't actually agree with that either. I'm just saying yeah. that, that is the general yeah. view abroad, it is, isn't it?
0: It is the general, because, you know, the, the, the pundits are often what, um, even today, but especially even up to a couple of years ago, what... Uh, what uh, John Nicholson at um, Football 365 refers to as proper football men. And the likes of Brian Clough, great manager though he was and everything, what he wanted to do was bring in a 19 or 20-year-old, 21-year-old, and browbeat them and bully them into yeah. um, signing the contract for far, far less than they were worth. And all James of a sudden, bond is
2: still a cracker though, Gary. Have to
0: it is that. a cracker. It is a cracker. And, of course, that's the charm of Clough, um, that when he was when he was doing good things he was charming but even when he was doing bad things he was still charming so it's you've got to kind of get through that but whenever people talk about agents uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about players who were well and truly ripped off and we're seeing it now particularly in terms of health and safety and the way they were treated by uh, clubs in terms of injury, rehabilitation and everything else agents have been largely a good thing even though it's very easy to make a case that they're taking too much money out of the game the question is if you don't have agents who do you- you have because i'll tell you what if you don't have them players are going to be ripped off just as much now as they were right the way until jimmy hill started doing something uh in their favor and then agents came along and did a lot more
2: there's always a kind of permanent distaste isn't there about how much footballers are paid and people say it's different now but i think it's always generally been like that um I don't know, it seems that like there's a kind of classist dimension to it in some ways, that these kind of working-class people who are bloody good at what they do shouldn't get a shitload of money for it. And and if you need somebody to help you get a shitload of money for it, then I don't really have that much of a problem with it, really.
0: Well, That's they, just me. A, a lot of people tend to to abhor the fact that um, that people have the right to sell their labour to the highest bidder, um, like they should sell it to the medium bidder or the lowest bidder. Now, I know there's there's something in that, in, that you, you can... You can take a whole club and, indeed you could take a whole sport possibly down the drain. And, you know, let's not even go where the hundred takes us in cricket next but it, but year. But agents don't um,
2: pay people, do they? This is what annoys me, is the people who are giving the money to these people. Why is it the agent's fault if you don't say, I'm not paying that much?
0: Yep, yeah, I, I concur. <laughs> yeah, anyway, sorry, we could go on all,
2: all night about that. Huh? So, so that was Dennis Wise. <laughs> Which <laughs> turned into a big, massive, vitriolic rant by everybody, apart from Rob, who we stayed well out of it. He just hurled some insults. The um, moving on. So, do we want to talk? What do we want to talk about next? Do we want to? I mean, let me talk about Paul Merson next, because there's nothing sleazy about Paul Merson. I don't think.
1: Is there? Well, if you really, if you really talk to biography,
2: there is. But, um, oh, but you know what but, I mean? I mean, no, what, oh no, 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 alcoholic with some effectively
1: addiction problems is not is not a. Uh, it's the fact he broke no, out
2: crying and, you know, it was quite a new
1: thing. Sorry, yeah, it is it, No, it is quite interesting how the, that whole Arsenal dressing room, which is kind of from that era held up as, the, you know, the Tuesday Club and everything else, and held up as the most kind of debauched dressing room in the country. And then actually, Merson and later Tony Adams were two of the first footballers to come out and actually talk about it quite openly. And um, obviously, Adams... Adams uh, Sobriety has lasted a lot longer than Merson's, although he sounds like he's he's been sober for a while again. Yeah, I, I suppose it's interesting because, in the context of the kind of evolution of masculinity, you know, even five years before that, it would have been hard to imagine a player talking like Merson did. it. And I find Merson quite interesting because he's obviously, you know, a figure of fun. A lot of people find it hilarious that he sometimes gets names on Soccer Saturday. Mm. Um, but actually, I, I, I've always. I had quite a lot of time for him, but certainly he's a footballer. I know Gary loves him. But yeah. also, I think he's an excellent pundit in terms of his reading of the game. But also, I have quite a lot of admiration for him, the fact that he did so sort openly of really talk about this stuff because it's not very easy to do that at the best of times, certainly not in the mid-90s, um, in that kind of ultra-masculine era of English football and everything. So, good luck to him. And I think I get the impression he's always been slightly... Um, I'm not confused isn't quite the right word, but, you know, kind of oscillates in terms of sometimes you get the impression that he wants to just be the kind of traditional idea, you know, Gary Cooper, strong, silent type and all that. And then other times he just thinks, well, fuck it, what's the shame in telling anyone and needs to get it out and so on. So whatever the kind of... I'm I'm not expressing this very well. Whatever the motivation, I just think, yeah, it would have taken a huge amount of courage to do it back then. Um, So, yeah, fair play. But you're right, I think at the time it probably was seen in that context because um, it would be seen not only the kind of the lifestyle, but also it would be seen then, I think, as, as weakness. Um, there was something kind it, like
2: of it. sort of filmic about it, I think. Oh, Gary, you're a reviewer in, in your other time. And there is, it is like, <laughs> a, a, scene. Scene. It is like yeah, a scene it from a movie where finally you, you know all this has been going on throughout the film and then in the sort of, I don't know, some part of the sec- in the... In the, the end of the second act, look, his whole world's going to fall, and he has this moment, and everyone breaks down in tears, and everyone puts well, an arm around him, and then you move into the third act where he comes back and and has a very good career.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is, and you know, you could imagine him being played by Leonardo DiCaprio or something like that. Although, of course, they don't <laughs> look, a lot, don't get carried away. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's also it's also a bit like a kind of Clash song, you know, in a, in a kind of an album track of. of of uh, London Calling, the Paul Merson career uh, trajectory would fit perfectly into into uh, London Calling, which enjoyed its uh, 40th anniversary recently. Um, I think Rob is right about the courage, and I think this is the, the biggest of the kind of cultural shifts that some of our subjects here kind of foreshadow and indeed underline, in that at that time in the press, and I think largely amongst the public. If you had problems with gambling, the answer was to stop gambling. If you had problems with alcohol, the answer was to stop (laughs) drinking. Just don't have a drink, simple as that. And if you had problems with cocaine, the answer was to stop doing line to cocaine. Yeah, I mean, there was no sense or... There was a sense that these were rich young men who who had the agency to to do these things and also the agency to stop doing these things. There was very, very little... Understanding of people addiction. seem to struggle with
2: the fact that addiction isn't logical.
0: Yeah, and that was actually, little...
2: if it was a logical thing, everyone, you do, nobody would ever be an addict.
0: Yeah, and you know, how can't you be? How, how can you not be happy when you're earning five five yeah. thousand pounds? And look at all you've got to place. throw away.
2: Just use yeah. your brain and think about yeah. that. You know, so yeah, oh, I've a, thought of that. Yeah, cheers. You've
0: got a big car. What are you doing? <laughs> drinking? You've got a big car. You can afford taxis. Why the hell are you drink driving yeah. and everything? And I think we've we've learned a lot about that. And I'm not saying that that there was zero agency on the part of Merson or anyone else who has uh, those problems. Um, but there is a much kind of deeper understanding of um, the psychological dimension of these behaviours uh, that that is made manifest in, in sort of run, walking around Wembley doing the uh, booze all night uh, uh, mime. And I think Merson and Adams uh, deserve great credit for that there are some others as well um, because it, it brought to mind that it wasn't just kind of pop stars you know the 27 club who could fall into this but it was also um, footballers athletes and then we found out you know it could be the person next door or it could be the your, your boss or it could be someone who works for you and I think that we we wouldn't have been as advanced, I think, in our understanding. And some might say, well, you're not very bloody advanced now, are you, the way things are? Well, I can tell you, you compare it to 25 years ago, we are advanced. Um, we wouldn't have had that, and we wouldn't have had the change in attitude of the press, I think, in particular, towards these problems, uh, where Merson not as open as he, as he was. And um, I think he deserves credit for that, and I think that... that um, looking back from even the greater distance perhaps in another 20 years time that'll be seen even more uh, clearly so um, it was it was brave, it was unusual and um, you know I think he, he played a part in, in a big shift in British cultural attitudes. He allowed, he allowed he people
2: to see addicts as human beings I think because there was nothing more human in that moment in that press conference and I think for all the things with George Best he was probably the most famous football alcoholic at that point i don 't think he humanized it because people still took it as somehow of a lifestyle thing with him, which is ridiculous because he made himself very ill but I think and, and was,
0: he was a, and he was on a pedestal he was a god. he wasn't he True. didn't walk yeah. amongst us the way Merson did Merson was a fine player, but he was no godlike status like the fifth I... people.
1: I'm not sure, I mean, I might be wrong, but just I'm not sure what Merson did actually change very much at all, really, uh, which is not to dismiss it because, like I said, I'm incredibly courageous. But I think it's just these kind of things move very slowly in terms of understanding, but it just it kind of put it on the table for the first time in a generation. And I think that kind of ultimately helped. But at the time, I don't remember there being... A, I don't think there was a huge amount of... Um, disdain for him or anything, but I don't think there was a, a huge amount of empathy either. And the same with Adams. I I think there was a still there would still have been plenty of jokes about, you know, the usual shit. It's like that thing in the Sopranos. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because it's fiction. I kinda of, When Chrissy gives up and he's moaning about something and one and Tony says, why don't you just have a fucking drink? And I think there was an attitude like that. And Strachan actually said that to Tony Adams and he regretted it after. At the end of Adam's first scene, the sobriety had a row in a game at Highfield Road, and Strachan said, What do you do everyone a favor and have a fucking drink?" I, I shouldn't laugh, but like, it's kind of funny in the, con- yeah. in the context of Strachan thinking it was something that could be said, and he regretted the story But I think there was still an element of that. I, like I don't think anyone wished him ill, but uh, equally, I don't think there was. I think there was sympathy, but I don't know how much empathy there was. Whereas I think now mm. people are generally more understanding, and that just I, that, 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 those processes always take time, don't they? I yeah. think Mercer kind of got it started. I don't think it would have been his intention. I guess he just got to a stage in his life when he couldn't couldn't do it anymore. And, and fair play to him for talking about it because a hell of a lot of people, particularly in that, but don't forget we're also at the height of um, or approaching the height of you know cool Britannia and all that shine, culture. loaded culture, yeah. exactly. So it was a it, it was a particularly. Um, kind of sociable time, for want of a better word. So, yeah, (laughs) it would be... But it's not easy to do it in that context. Why don't you just, you know, why why don't you just come out and have a couple and all that shit? Um, Well, I definitely saw him and Gascoigne having a couple in the Empire Nightclub in Middlesbrough a few years later. Well, he tells stories. This is, just as an aside, this is... This is sad, but also kind of... It's one of the reasons Gascoigne probably didn't make the World Cup. But he said he would get... When they were at Borough... He would get the train north in the mornings, and Gasco would meet him at a certain point, I forget where it was. A would have a bottle of red wine before training on the train. And like, Jesus Christ, it's another world. Mm. Um yeah. But yeah, I mean Merced, obviously it's been an ongoing struggle and still is.
0: Um uh, uh, yeah. I think when when I read um Tony Adams book Wasted uh I think it's called Wasted is that Paul Smith's book Addicted Addicted, Addicted, is Adam's book and I read that probably in about 2000 because I I think I was at my parents home over Christmas when I kind of picked it up because it was there and read it pretty much in one sitting and I remember even even in 2000 and you know I was I was 37 then so I was no I was no kid um it it really underlined something for me which I hadn't realized which is the difference between alcoholism and drinking a lot because I was drinking a lot for sure I was (laughs) in the pub every night and I was often drunk and it had those pop quizzes you get in the tabloids or in one of those take a break magazines or something and have you ever been this 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 and this and I was whenever I did those I was scoring sort of 14 out of 15 you know you are a problem drinker (laughs) but reading Adam's book I was not a problem. Uh, I w- may have been a problem drinker, but I was not an alcoholic. And I think it's maybe because I'd seen Adams growing up. You know, I'd seen him play for Arsenal reserves when I lived uh, next to uh, Highbury uh, with contemporaries roughly the same age and stuff. And it really, it really drove it home to me. And. Um, yeah, you know, I'm. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And you know, never, never after that did I ever confuse having a few drinks and being out five nights a week with being an alcoholic, because they are two very, very different things.
2: And on that note, we'll move on. But yeah, good stuff. Uh, so, well, that isn't good stuff. Sorry, good discussion <laughs> about, about Paul Merson. Uh, I'm sure he had some good stuff for half the problem. But it was, uh, the, um... <laughs> So sticking at Arsenal then and we'll come on to the major topics, but there was George Graham being having a bung. This season the FO were conducting investigations into irregularities in the transfer market at Arsenal after the in on revenue queried a couple of payments. Graham admitted to taking an unsolicited gift of four hundred and twenty-five grand from a Norwegian agent, Runa Hargrave, after his players, John Jensen and Pat Leaderson signed for Arsenal in nineteen ninety two. Just to give you some context, Graham George Graham's salary at the time was three hundred K a year. So it's a fairly sizable chunk, that. After questions were raised, Graham returned the money in full. When they published the results of their inquiry, Graham was found guilty of accepting a portion of a transfer fee. Peter Hillwood sacked him on the 21st of February for not, acti- not acting in the best interests of Arsenal. <coughs> we have to be fair say to Graham, that he insists, and he still insisted it was a gift, not a bung, to push the deals through and called the actions by Arsenal in a kangaroo court. The FA separately found him guilty of misconduct. Five months later, he was banned from all activity for a year, not all football activity. I'm sure he could do other activity. Uh, he was the only manager found guilty of taking a bung, although there was lots of allegations being levelled at lots of people around this time about it. Um, and I suppose, did his, did George Graham's reputation ever recover, Rob, from this, do you
1: think? I don't know that... Personally, I don't know that it hit his reputation that badly. It's more that... Um, I mean, obviously, it's he'll always be remembered for it, but, you know, I, I think there's a common sense for you that he was unlucky. I mean, I don't know whether it was a gift or whatever, but I'd be utterly astonished if there weren't tens of managers looking on at him thinking, shit, that could have been me. Um, and probably did a lot more. The, the Two things about it. I think his career never quite recovered because he went to Leeds and I went to Spurs and I, I don't know, something was kind of lost in, he had decent times at both, but particularly Spurs, but nothing really. Um the two things. One is like I've and I don't get it wrong, I know I'm sure it happens, it absolutely must does happen, but I've never got the greed of people who are on that much money to risk it to do it. and particularly the interesting thing about Graham now, whether he again, we don't know. But he would always he was obsessed with the values of Arsenal, you know. Arsenal were a bit different to everyone else, so it was the Arsenal, a superior club, mm. this is the way you behave, you know. So to then jeopardize that was always a bit strange. Um and that applies, obviously, even more so now, because you still hear stories of it going on, whether it's bungs or whether it's, like, other ways that managers take money that isn't I mean, the thing is, the, the, the only thing... You? I don't get it.
2: The only thing that people like more than money is more money, generally yeah, speaking. And it makes... I agree with you, on the as an abstract, you think, oh, well, I wouldn't do that if I had that much money. But I do think money makes people make strange decisions. And that's yeah. why you you know it's it's a very Not, powerful and strange yeah. thing. I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but I've seen it enough. I think we've no, all seen enough, it enough with people that right. we know. Never mind yeah. this level. Yeah, but money makes people make funny decisions.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, a lack of money does as well. But yeah, it's um, <laughs> yes, quite yeah uh, yeah that's, that's, uh, yeah um, yeah. I don't know. Just strange more than anything. Just I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't know. I I don't think of it as just big kind of disgrace that defines his career. But I'd still think of him more than anything as the manager of the team that won Anfield and then won the league again. But well, I mean, it's there, it's there. In his I remember of...
2: shrugging my shoulders about this at the time, thinking, well, I just <laughs> assumed <laughs> yeah. this happened anyway. You know when you think, well, a Facebook... Oh, that's the, the point. Did the it Facebook does, know
1: though. where you yeah. are? It's like, well, I assume they do anyway. I've given up on it, you know, and I think... It clearly, uh, there were a lot of allegations against Brian Clover from Alan Sugar, I think. There are other managers... Um, yeah, look, it, does, it clearly did and almost certainly does still go on. So I, I have a bit of sympathy for him in that sense. I mean, not to say that if he, you know, yes. if, if it was proven, then, you know, fair enough, they probably had to sack him. But, but yeah, I don't know. I find it hard to get that bothered about, really.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same. And just before you said that you shrugged your shoulders, I was going to use exactly the same phrase because... I mean, I understand that not declaring stuff to the inland revenue, especially when it's those kind of sums, is is a bad thing, and you deserve to be hauled up. And you know, I'm speaking to someone who's got to do his tax return that I've been putting off for months now, <laughs> and I've got to do it at the yeah uh, at the weekend. Um, but um, I remember at the time thinking, well. You know, in the late 80s, when when um, I was uh, working for Dorothy Perkins, you know, we, we had suppliers and at Christmas we'd be taken out to quite nice restaurants and we'd drink nice wine and we'd have nice brandy to finish off and it, sometimes we even got back to the office before five o'clock, but often we didn't. <laughs> and there would be hampers arrive and, you know, we were very good and, then, and we shared out amongst the the staff there but it didn't sort of change our judgment and it didn't mean that the one supplier particularly got more orders than another supplier but of course these are these are relatively small scale things we had a little bit of corporate hospitality okay it wasn't Royal Box at Wimbledon and it wasn't uh, the Open Golf but it was still quite nice and again you know I, I didn't see this as being in any sense wrong and you know i drew a continuum from that kind of stuff that goes on in business all the time I mean, literally there is an industry called corporate hospitality which is based on that very premise so um i just drew a a line from that to some of these bungs and i thought well why is everybody getting so agitated if arsenal are, are being run in such a way that um that the Transfer fee can be £725,000, but only £300,000 is going to Arsenal. They should have better auditors and better accountants who are better able to and, see the And I think the key, the key thing is he, he, better I, negotiators.
2: Yeah, the key thing is he, it's not that he was signing these players because of that. I think he would have signed these players anyway. Well, I suppose well, that's the that, key thing we don't know. I suppose it,
0: it's that blaring, uh, which becomes you know because you're, you're riding two horses. You know, you're, you're acting in the best interests of Arsenal and you're acting in the best interests of George Graham. And like Rob, you know, I, I, I he may be the poster boy, but I'd be flabbergasted if he was the only one. So it's not just him we're talking about. It just didn't seem that big a. Uh, 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 a deal to me and I mean there were times it was reported like it was kind of Al Capone you know that um they were getting him on a tax technicality but he was actually sort of doing evil and and all of this um Clearly, that wasn't the case, but there's somewhere along the line whereby it's okay to get a a, a nice sort of Harrod's Christmas hamper coming uh, coming to the department and doling out the uh, the pickles on Christmas Eve and uh, to everyone, and taking um, four hundred twenty five thousand pounds from uh, Runa Hauger. somewhere on that line. What is? acceptable and um and not corrupt becomes unacceptable and and corrupt and i don't know where that line is and i don't know whether that line is objective or subjective um but it's it's there somewhere and i think we all know it's there somewhere but trying to to identify it is is tough and certainly when you're in an area which is about a moral spectrum um to condemn utterly at one end and nod and a wink and say you know uh Thanks very much. Very nice. Uh, the other end is uh, is behaviour that leaves a slight sort of uh, distasteful uh, flavour in the mouth. Not so unlike th- some of those pickles, by the way.
2: <laughs> Speaking of, uh, well, while we're on about people receiving things they shouldn't have done, allegedly there was also then the match fixing allegations. November 1994, the Sun ran an expose on a match fixing in England and implicated Bruce Grablear, Hans Segers, and John Fashionew, all three, plus a Malaysian businessman called Henswan Lim. They were all acquitted. We have to make that very strongly clearly. They were all acquitted after trial in 1997, although Grobolal was later ruined financially when he tried to sue the son for damages, not his initial victory overturned on appeal. Did you read the I read the book on this many moons ago um, that a journalist wrote. And it goes into a lot of it. And it does a lot of it does seem you know, there's some stuff going on there, but they were all found not guilty. What I do know is that. I remember reading in the book it's a while since I've read it the sun had a four page special on john fashiny ready to go if he got found mm. guilty that's what was that, really? that's what was so she, yeah they had all this don't know what was in it or what they were going to say and I'm not I don't know what it is and I'm not accusing them of anything but what it very clearly said was that had he been found guilty the the episode the day after the episode the issue the day after they were ready to go with this big four page spread about what they discovered about john Fashionew. Who knows what it was,
1: hmm.
2: but in the end, it all became a bit of a damp squib, really. But again, it had the sort of like stuff hanging over. I remember it; it seemed to run for a very long time. This, I suppose, it did up to nineteen ninety seven. It was a good. I think it time. was.
0: I think it was Grubbler's, um defamation case uh, that that gave it sort of extra extra life, and we're in we're in difficult waters, yes, because we were yes. found not guilty. Absolutely. So, um, a, a jury of twelve good men and true were not <laughs> were not convinced. Um, you know, Hans Sager's played in the greatest match I've ever seen live, which was also in 1994 uh, when Everton came well, that... back from two nil to win three two. Wasn't at, that one uh, the games... on the last day of the season?
1: Wasn't that one of the games that was cited?
0: I think there was there was either that game that game was clearly fixed
1: by the fates, <laughs> because it's the most ridiculous game of football I've ever seen. It was, was from absolutely hand absurd. Handball to. So I mean he does dive over one of them, but I mean who knows goalkeeper.
2: Wasn't yeah, the draw, like, wasn't wasn't the Liverpool know. the famous Liverpool United game? 3 or draw. Wasn't he supposed yeah. to
1: have a- accidentally made some saves or something? Yeah. well you know he was he's supposed to have accidentally was, made a brilliant he, save.
2: The allegation was that he wasn't that good a goalkeeper up until it got to a certain number of goals going in. Then he became incredible.
1: What is I would yeah. say is those the the, the goals United scored that night and two of them were completely unsavable. So, but I don't know. I suppose, I think that's one of those things that certainly at that age, that I couldn't accept that it was true, but I, I, it would have just shattered everything, you know, at that stage, cricket, Match fixing, I didn't really know much about. And I was still completely naive to the idea that it would happen. Um, so I, loved, I think I didn't take it that seriously. What Whereas I loved now, about
2: it was, I don't think you can take any seriously when Bob Wilson is the star witness, You remember? He was called to say, <laughs> yeah, can yeah, you yeah, watch yeah. this video and see where Bruce Grubler yeah, was yeah. stood? What do you think? Is that the right place to stand? Imagine being the sat of the jury while that went on. It's amazing stuff. Like the shittiest episode of CSI you've ever seen. <laughs> g-
0: <laughs> well, I, I I've always been... I've always been a believer, and, you know, I, I was a huge fan of cycling. I read two cycling magazines each month that I um, subscribed to all through the the 90s and well into the 2000s until it just became untenable. Um, I'm, I've always been a believer that, that if something can happen, it will happen. That's what history tells us. It's also what human nature uh, tells us. Uh, but at the same time, you just have to park that because in this sort of crazy world of sport um we we have to buy in you know it's a bit like going to a pantomime you you have to buy in if you if you stand at the sideline saying oh i think that's fixed or yeah i'm sure we'll hear about this later then you you may be right and you may be right more than you're wrong as well but your life is going to be so much more diminished if you don't accept that what you see is is real and sometimes when you'll be proved wrong and you'll be taken for a ride but really i think it's a price worth paying the the parking that cynicism uh knowing that cynicism is there knowing that it that as i say what what can happen will happen on occasion but um yeah let's let's catch the drug cheats let's catch the match fixes and everything else but let's not have it at the forefront of our minds otherwise we just our lives become smaller as a result less romantic um less less full of of Fairy tales, and one needs that you really do, because the rest of life can be terribly dull, you know um but let's let's keep our heroes <laughs> i just
1: i, I, I want to like an alternate reality of you, Gary, in Italy in 1980, <laughs> trying to process some of A's more eccentric results and decisions <laughs> <laughs> with that philosophy.
0: Well, uh, Leeds in Paris is the is the one, isn't it? Oh, that yeah, uh, yeah. always gets. And I've, I've, I think I might have been sort of nine or ten years old at the time. Was it 72 or something like that? And I've got vague memory of watching it, thinking, I don't think this is real. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, and that was um, that was later proved, I think, to be uh, to be uh, the subject of, uh, let's say, jiggery pokery. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it will happen, and it does happen, and it will happen in the future. But I, I like to mark that.
2: Hmm. Shall we talk about this game in Ireland before we finish off with the, oh, the, the, the God. Topic, before we talk oh. about uh, art and so on?
0: Oh dear, oh dear! You can introduce it, Lee, but this was. One of the all-time lows of my football watching. I was at my brother's uh, house in um, uh, facing onto Blackheath, and I can tell you I felt like walking out onto that (laughs) moor in the dark and just digging a hole and lying in
1: it. Go on, Rob. No, (laughs) the reason I remember this... Let me just check the date. I need to check the date. Yeah, it was. It was on my mum's birthday, and she's Irish. And my fucking mates had gone... Some of my mates were at uni, and the others had gone to visit them, and I couldn't... I can't even remember why. And the fucking arseholes called my home where I was. Remember, about two in the morning after this game. And it obviously got absolutely pongo during the game and then after, and just fucking constantly calling. Absolute pricks. My poor mum had to go to work. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's my abiding memory. I don't think I watched it. because we. I, don't, I think it would have been on Sky. I think I would have been just listening on the radio. And again, at that age, you kind of, you realise it's bad, but probably Gary was more... Well, older, but also I watched it in educated. the pub, so it was
2: how severe it was. So I watched it in the pubs. so it was kind of weird to, because you didn't know what was going on. But anyway, to give you the story, the Republic, for those you don't remember, the Republic of Ireland hosted England in a friendly on the fifteenth of February, nineteen ninety-five. It was England's first away game since San Marino in November nineteen ninety-three, and and it was part of the build-up of friendlies ahead of the Euro ninety-six. Let me just tell you about the teams because there was some notable stuff in here. The Republic of Ireland lined up this way. Alan Kelly, Dennis Irwin, Terry Phelan, Alan and Paul McGrath, Eddie McGoldrick, Andy Townsend, David Kelly, Niall Quinn, John Sheridan and Steve Staunton. England lined up this way. David Seaman, Warren Barton, Graeme Lasso, Paulins, Tony Adams, Gary Pallister, David Platt, Peter Beardsley, Alan Shearer, Matthew Latissier, and Darren Anderton. I remember it being... This was seen as the big, this is leticia's chance under a now progressive manager in Venables. You know, the new team, friendly, brilliant, off we go. And I remember the kind of big thing, I'll talk, we'll talk about what happened in a minute, but at the end of it, when it all went a bit, when it turned a little bit bad, or very bad, thinking... Oh, what a shame for Matthew Latissier! which is ridiculous because there's far bigger things going on than that. But that's what I remember. That's my overriding memory. I think
1: when you're this. that age, though, that's your first thought, isn't it? Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. It's the actual football. Never mind, you there's Nazis no, in the
2: I, audience. What about Matthew yeah,
1: you don't Yeah, I, but also maybe maybe because you grew up with that kind of thing, maybe we kind of anaesthetised it slightly and without understanding the context. I don't know. I know that at that age I was the same. Like, I would always kind of zone in on the football part of it. Um, which you're right, it's ridiculous, but but it's kind of um, yeah, it's kind of just what it's like when you're a reasonably thick eighteen-year-old <laughs> like I was.
2: So the game took place during I think it was the first IRA to ceasefire in the lead up to the Good Friday Agreement. So I think this is the ceasefire that ended when they bombed Canary Wharf. I can't remember, but uh, it was. Uh, but so it was still considered a high risk. David Kelly put the Republic of Ireland ahead after 22 minutes, then the trouble started. Now the England fans have been put into an, the upper west stand. Combat 18 were all over this. The I mean, are they still a thing, Combat 18, all these years on? But they were a big, horrible right wing Nazi arsehole
0: group. Um, yeah, you know why they were called Combat 18?
2: I can't. I, I did know this, and now I can't remember. Tell me, Gary. It's,
0: it's because the first uh, letter and the eighth letter of the alphabet are A H, ah, uh, who yeah. is uh, a famous leader of uh, the Third Reich. Twats, yeah.
2: And they, uh, so they start tearing the stamp to pieces and throwing coins and shit on the island fans beneath them. There was a big review after the game in which they said that effectively the, Na- the, the, the National Criminal Investigation Service in, in Britain had actually offered some intelligence to the Guardi and offered to assist them in sorting this out prior to the game to weed people out. And apparently the Guardi turned it down. The Independent Judicial Review said that this p- could probably have been avoided if the Guardi had been a bit more cross-border in their approach, I suppose. But of course, it, that's, it's not their fault. It's the fault of the arseholes that did it. But um, it was interesting that afterwards, I think it was after this, that people started working across borders on hooliganism a little bit more. And and banning orders probably gathered a bit more pace after this in, from memory. But um, so there you go. So the game was stopped at the 27 minutes and then it was abandoned with, um, with the idiots in the England end and celebrating the abandonment, singing No Surrender, which we still fucking do now, we I'm not one of them, but England fans do now. Throwing Nazi salutes. Only three England matches have ever been abandoned. Two of them were because of the weather, and one of them was
1: because of this. Because of, two because of the weather, and one because of shower.
2: Cuts. Oh, hey, yeah. So, and then I always remember this. I was playing. I was an, an an okay badminton player, and I played for the university. And there was a lad I played badminton with. It was this very sort of mild-mannered, unassuming guy. And it was about a month after this, we had a league match. And we God, started where's talk- going? No, yeah. And we started talking about I'll see who he is. But we started talking about I said it was fucking disgrace, that, wasn't it? You know? And he was like, Oh no, not really. And then he started speaking, and this sort of mild mannered bloke I played doubles with at Badminton turned into this kind of ranting what would be a EDL now, I suppose, or sort of Combat 18, or oh, it wasn't that, and this was happening as well. Then he started talking to me about how he'd got in fights and ripped people's ears off and everything. It was like, What the fucking hell am <laughs> I dealing with here? Is it, is it so is my serve? Yes, whatever you want it to be, mate. Frankly, but yeah, it's a. If, if, it, if it went, if it goes off on the boundary court, you'll be oh, fine. Well, you know,
1: it's a tasty when you're playing, you know, a friendly Jesus against Christ.
2: Stockton on Tees in the league. Yeah,
1: that's actually that is quite alarming, isn't it? That you couldn't even like that suddenly it all comes out and then, yeah, yeah. see, that, see a person it was a
2: honestly price. absolutely, It was kind of fucked and again, because I was a student, I assumed everybody thought like me, you know. So it was yeah. kind
0: of... it's the uh, it's the cock with the shuttlecock.
2: Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, very bizarre. So anyway, yeah, so it's about, it stops at the 27 minutes, off it goes. Is it the most shameful night in England history? I've got it written here.
0: It's the most shameful night that I can recall myself, because I remember those those feelings. And, I mean, we all knew it was there, but it, it, it seemed like they were the only people there. And The cameras were panning across, and it wasn't like sort of you know this small minority that the commentators would often say it was clearly almost everyone and how had they done it and why were they doing it in Dublin which at that point was you know it was yeah okay it was the Republic of Ireland and and stuff but it was stag nights you know went to Dublin and and stuff like that and you know, they were all they were all our own players on the on the pitch they were all sort of first division some second division or Premier League and some uh, what would then call first division players it seems so parochial so small so destructive so horribly insular so rooted in a false view of history so unprogressive and you know I I I was because clearly the 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 green shoots of of what became the good friday agreement were were emerging in ireland and for it to go back so far and for it to be football fans or people at football matches let's call them who were who had so taken the stage and forced the um the abandon the abandonment of a of an england football match in dublin i mean it was and you can still hear it in my voice now, it was so, so horrible. And it was an insight into a world that... I, I knew existed and I'd been at West Ham uh, you know with the the racists at West Ham in nineteen eighty, but even then was you know, it was fifteen years earlier that we had the FA Cup semi final at Ellen Road where there was, you know, a big racist element to the uh, West Ham fans. I'm sure there was probably some in the Everton fans as well, but it was organised in the amongst the West Ham fans in, in nineteen eighty. And it was it was just a kind of low emptiness and I think and a thinking that we'd that that we would stepped back so far from where we could have been going, and you know, I, I, I'm I, I'm going to say this, and I, I'm not drawing the two things as a parallel. <laughs> no, where this is next, going. Yeah. I was just so about to say. Time, well,
2: luckily, we've abandoned all that. But yeah, go yeah.
0: On. <laughs> the next time I had that same feeling of 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 the progressive project being uh, being lost was, of course, you know, that June day in 2016 when you wake up and you you find that. Um, yeah, that uh, the man who stood in front of a fake poster saying uh, these are the people coming to invade us was the person whose uh, whose argument had, had won fifty two percent of the vote. Um so you know they 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 really were um it really was kind of a marker that stands as as clearly in my mind from February ninety five as June two thousand and sixteen does. Um and uh, you know, I it was a kind of probably took me a little while you know I wasn't anything like as involved in Euro 96 as as some people were um I wasn't involved in Euro 96 to anything like the extent I was involved in Italian 90 for example and I think some of that was a, a leftover thing of of that that match uh, I think even though crowds attitudes and things like that were of course completely uh, different. Um, there's no comparison of singing footballs coming home compared to singing No Surrender. But um, I, it, it took me it took me at least that long to to recover, and um, you know the scar's still there. You can hear it.
2: Yeah, I think again, probably as Rob mentioned before, Gary, it probably shows our slight differences in age because I can remember just forgetting about it very quickly in the fact that it happened, and then the game got abandoned, and then oh God, Mathias, did never got a chance again. And then all of a sudden it was Euro 96. I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of talk that had it happened a bit further out from Euro 96, which was 16 months away, England might well have lost the tournament because because, because England fans. Um, in the interesting postscript, in the aftermath of the game, Vinnie Jones bit the nose off a of Daily Mirror reporter, Ted Oliver, in a bar near Lansdowne Road. Jones said it was intended to be a prank, but it got out of hand. I mean, who I mean, <laughs> be honest. Who, yeah. I mean, we've all been there, right? Who hasn't bit somebody's nose off when you just try to have a laugh, you know? Um, he lost his you well, I think he lost his newspaper column over it, um, and it led, and then it, he went to a bit of a dark place, that Vinnie Jones. But uh,
0: did all right since
2: he has done all right since he has done all right since a lot of positive stuff about Vinnie Jones actually. He watched that Leeds documentary. If you watched that about when he was there, talking about how he was always incredibly willing to go out and do community work, you no know, no extra cost and no fanfare in it for him and stuff strange old character, really.
0: It's going to take me a while to warm to Vinnie <laughs> Jones. So.
2: Uh, last thing before we go on to the thing is that Chris Armstrong was caught for cannabis and was banned for four matches by the FA and sent for counselling. The interesting thing was this came after Merson um, and, they didn't, and it came after Wise and the FA didn't ban him, but they did ban Chris Armstrong. They were obviously, by the end of this season, they were obviously getting a bit fed up with all this shit happening. So, uh, uh, they decided... I mean, to-
0: I- I saw Chris Armstrong score a hat trick for Tottenham at White Hart Lane against Everton, and was right up at the very top of the stadium. And I think he did play for England a, a few times. I, no, I just wonder didn't. what He didn't did, no. didn't he? No. no, maybe he was. He was. He, was he
1: may have been in squads. He, well, of yeah. course, it was that golden age of centre forwards. He got an England B cap. A good yeah. player, but, um, but he was a good player. He may have been in squads. I'm not I, none spring to mind, to be honest. But you're right. He, well, I think it was just. There were so many good set forwards. Certainly, in my last the strongest i have ever been in that
0: position. I just wonder if that was a block on his on his career, though, because um, you know I, I think he faded away. I don't know whether he faded away in the immediate aftermath. I'm like not sure that, he's that, ever but, good enough no, to be to honest. He went to
1: Spurs. Yeah, exactly. I think he was just short in that era, in particular.
0: Yeah, may, maybe. He went to Spurs maybe Spurs that right. summer.
1: So I don't think it was a problem immediately. Cause, yeah, his Palace went down. Spurs bought him. A decent career at Spurs, certainly the first few years. Um,
0: Did he, yeah. was he I, again? The... It's one of
1: those I don't remember ever thinking too much about it, really.
0: Yeah, maybe it's just that he scored a hat trick against Everton. I tend to remember those things.
1: Oh no, he was a good player. He was. He was awkward and a very good runner and decent enough finisher. And... Pace, he could kind yeah, of, but p- p- you could kind of play well with direction
2: Shane. off both feet, couldn't he? A bit Collymore-esque sort of thing. But uh, yeah,
1: yeah, just not in the same class. No, indeed.
2: Um... So, we've skirted around it long enough. Should we talk about our booting somebody at Sellers Park? Because that is coming up to the anniversary. The 25-year anniversary th- this coming Sunday as we record it. It might be today if you're on general release fact, and not a As patron. we
1: speak, as we speak, yeah, it's Wednesday night. and The equivalent Wednesday night, I think it was 8.57. He um, nobly attempted to kick racism out of football. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, so, uh,
2: we all know, I think, there's nobody who well, surely listen to this doesn't know what happened. But if we just want to give a quick Potter thing of what happened, Rob, quickly, paint the picture, what happened?
1: Yeah, basically, P- Palace away, Wednesday night, difficult game, blah, blah, blah. Um, Richard Shaw and I think Chris Coleman were the centre-backs. They kicked Cantonar and Andy Cole around quite a lot in the first half. Um, then in the second half, about three minutes in the second half, Cantonar kicked Shaw off the ball was sent off. Um then there was a bit of a melee involving a few players. canter sort of stroll. There's a lovely there's a lovely bit which I only noticed later where he um he actually puts before he walks off the field he puts his collar down. It's almost like someone getting out of their work clothes. I think it's really <laughs> nice. Um, and then he walks to the touchline and then and then basically yeah some some kid, Matthew Simmons came down, shouted something like what was he, he was supposed to, he claimed to have said, off you go, Cantona, it's an early bath for you. The, what he actually said had a few more popular four-letter words in it. Um, and then Cantona, yeah, basically he picked the wrong target. Because obviously in those days, well now, generally, footballers would never kind of answer back to that. Well, Cantona, Kung Fu kicked him over the barriers. And then, and this is kind of forgotten actually, and then landed quite a nice roundhouse right on him as well. Um, and then it all went off. Michael came over and tried to, to kind of drag him to the down the tunnel. They, were, I think, they were sharing with a cup of tea or something. Um, Ids was then in trouble as well. And um, that was it, really. Um, and the interesting thing is <laughs> that's that all there was. Yeah, will just leave it there. <laughs> Ferguson didn't actually know what. He um, didn't realise the extent of it. He thought Cantona had been dragged into the crowd because after the game, I mean, he was annoyed because Palace had scored a late equaliser. United were kind of hanging on to Blackburn. So they couldn't afford to drop points. And he pretty much gave everyone a bollocking except Cantor, Which is quite funny because he didn't realise the extent of it. And the language that everyone used, even the policeman, was sufficiently ambiguous that he hadn't twigged how bad it was. And even I think his son said to gave a hint that, like, this this is serious. But he, even then he didn't bother. He thought he was just gonna go home and he didn't watch it until he went, to, tried to go to bed, couldn't sleep, then put the video on it. It was only then at like 5am that he realised the extent of what had happened. I think he thought Cantona had been physically dragged over the board because, you know, so much going on when a player's sent off. You're trying to reorganise your team and so on. And there were a lot of little spats going on around the pitch as well. And then obviously it just exploded. Well, it exploded straight away, but in those days, of course, no, you know, no mobile phones, no social media, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so it didn't really get going at United until, until the next day. Um and then obviously for the next few weeks it was it was the biggest story around for most. My, my
2: favourite thing and I know, you know, is it a good or a bad thing that player wallop somebody in the crowd?
1: Oh fantastic.
2: We, we get it to, But my favourite thing about it is the the dawning realisation in the Palace fans' eyes when he realizes what he's just fucking unleashed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. my fit. There is a you can see it, there's a very definite moment where he thinks, Oh shit, because... Let's be, you know, Let's not forget, Cantona is not a small lad. No, you know, he's he's sort he, of like yeah. he, he's sort of back row forward for rugby sort of thing. He's six foot. He's about six foot. He's he about f- pushing on fourteen stone. He's he's a bit of a lump, and he's mad. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's coming yes. towards you. Do you think, and basically every, is- you're about to reap all the bollocks you've just sown, mate. And it's not going to be fun. Yeah.
1: This EJ hadn't done his homework, had he? No, no. If, if he had. For it me, it's a full-time job
2: see. and you're in bad shape. Yeah, you know. It's, yeah, if, I, yeah, I...
1: Of Cool. No, I was just going to say that, but basically, if, if he knew anything of Canton, I'd have known that, you know, that kind of thing wasn't beyond the realms, that, that kind of reaction wasn't beyond the realms. Um, so, yeah. Hadn't he been sent off in
0: the previous match, or was he just. No, like, you're coming confusing up that there was.
1: No, you, well, he was sent off quite a lot, obviously. You know, what happened, yeah. it, it really got going. The previous March, he was sent off in consecutive games. One at Swindon, he stamped on ah, John, John Bonker, who still voted vote him for Player of the Year for Lina. <laughs> then at the next game, he was sent off at Arsenal, Probably but he was actually really unlucky. Yeah. He got a second yellow card for actually trying to avoid a collision. It was a terrible decision, and I'm not saying that like out of bias, but the papers went to town, you know, like Nutter and everything. That was around, I think United had four players sent off in five games, which in those days is like a big deal. But anyway, so then he was sent off again. He managed to get sent off in a friendly at the start of the following season for trying to two foot, I think it was a Rangers defender. So it was a kind of constant theme, but um, but actually his behaviour had been, he'd been fine. He'd actually been playing really well. Three or four days earlier, he scored the winner against Blackburn who were a title rival was a brilliant header. Um yeah. I was playing really well and but that was the point with Cantona you couldn't you couldn't see things coming only that anything was possible really because that was just his nature and he could and he said himself that actually that turn of events the exact same thing could have happened on a different day and he wouldn't have said anything and just on that day he just decided you're gonna I, you're gonna get it was it remember, was it
2: after a return from this ban that he did the fantastic was this the fantastic goal The the long sort of long chip lob goal the kind of the dipping oh, strike was, later then it, on. was that later than the yeah, slow that turn, was which is yeah. the, that was a couple of years later. Yeah. Ever since, and after another ban though, wasn't it?
1: Had he been off? No, and what been... that? No, to what happened there? He hadn't scored for a long time, so he won them the double almost on his own in his first season back. Him and Schmeichel. Then the following season, he hadn't scored in open play for about three months. He might have scored one or two penalties, and there were people saying maybe he's finished. And that's what that was all it was about. Like it
2: was like a driven lob, wasn't it? That he just slowly Yeah, it was like a
1: good he that just suddenly, like slow like, motion. Yeah. And he Incredible. just turned around like, yeah, hey,
0: just going slightly off point there's a brilliant bit in a brilliant documentary called my best fiend where which is uh, Werner Herzog's uh, working career with Klaus Kinski and he talks about the Kinski turn and it was very much the same as Cantonar's turn collar up after he did that uh, chip uh, but that's probably going too far off piste um <laughs> the uh Cantonar's um was the most famous... I remember saying to someone that the the most famous person in the whole of England for about two weeks was Eric Cantona. Now, that might might not surprise anybody knowing uh, the way the media is for football today, but it was a very different media landscape then. You know, there was no... There was no, I think Five Live maybe had just started or was about to start. There was no real 24-hour news. There was no Sky Sports news. You know, the the back pages at that time of the papers was three pages of horse racing and two pages of football. And... um, you know, it was, he was, it was a huge thing, and you know, it was, it was debated, it was water cooler moments, everybody, people who knew nothing about football, everyone had an opinion on, on Cantona, and the opinions varied enormously, and um, you know, it was such a, a talking point. I think what's sometimes forgotten is that, and you can still see this now, is that, the way that stills photographs caught the moment compared to the video were very different because in the video, he sort of launches the famous Kung Fu kick and then gets kind of stuck, doesn't he? On the the barrier. He's he's flapping about a bit like a kind of beached whale (laughs) trying to get off this sort of barrier so he can get at the, uh, at the gobby palace fan and give him that right-hander. And it's vaguely kind of pantomime. It's, it's, it has a comedic element to it. He's uh, you know, Sort of uh, Monsieur Hulot goes to Selhurst Park uh, aspect to to the video, whereas the photographs are just spectacular because they're balletic. You know, he's defying gravity in the air as he launches into the. Uh, into let's face it central casting could not have done a better job could they, for a <laughs> gobby palace fan in the mid-90s than that matthew simmons kid um so the, those those two are very different kind of aesthetic appreciation of the moment if you watch the video it's pantomime and if you look at the photographs it's ballet we spoke
1: about Noel quinn and that photo at old trafford earlier and actually the the, the palace picture is similar there are some brilliant facial expressions, oh. <laughs> some from kind of like upright outrage, some pointing, open mouth. There's one guy who just looks like nothing's going, like he's walking to the shop for his paper. It's really weird, like completely expressionless, hasn't reacted at all. It's, it's really interesting. But yeah, you're right about that. I think that's a really good point. And it just also like, he, he kung fu kicks somebody's his football boots. Like, it's just <laughs> such an inelegant and... <laughs> <laughs> odd thing to do, but but that was the beauty of him, really. He didn't he didn't care. Didn't and then of g- course he did, did at, not care what anyone thought of him. He got and, his band, didn't God he? God bless him for
2: that. He, he did his seagulls following the, the thing.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: I always found it really interesting that I remember reading at the uh, roundabout this time about how everybody saw him as kind of tempestuous and French and poetic and artistic and stuff. And I remember reading this French guy was saying at the time that in France this seems mystifying because he's got this really thick Marseille accent. <laughs> so It'd be like in this country, something like, I don't know, Lee Clark at Newcastle at the yeah. time being all sort of trying to be all mysterious and poetic with that accent, which is not something from Newcastle, can't be mysterious and poetic. Well, but you see the point, for them it was a bit like, but he sounds really stupid. <laughs> well, but
0: for us, he sounds- just sounded
2: French and mysterious,
0: yeah. you know. Yeah, Paul Cezanne was inventing modern art at the end of the uh, 19th century and was still getting laughed at because of his provencal accent so you know it uh, it lives on yeah. um that that uh, that approach um with with Cantona um it, it, I mean he was obviously such a such a fantastic footballer I mean does does the for Manchester United fans, and Rob, I've probably got to rule you out of this. Um, hmm. Maybe I've got to rule out football fans hmm. in general. But does, <laughs> but does, does that incident define Cantona, or, yeah, or absolutely. was he so brilliant that that his his extraordinary sequence of of goals in those one nil wins that won the title a year or two after is is that more more important, or is it just one of those things that those of us who Watched football at the time, appreciate his genius and, and understand that with that comes a lot of baggage. Whereas others, sort of, he's the kung fu kick and the stellar artoir adverts and the trawler um, chasing the seagulls.
1: No, I think it's the defining moment of his life, definitely. And I, 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 like, He was obviously a United legend already he had won two leagues and he catalyzed all that. But I think that's the moment he became kind of immortal among a certain <laughs> group of United fans, anyway. And I really do, though, because. Just everything, all his kind of, Ferguson called it his defiant charisma. And that kind of summed it up, really. He, he, yeah. he did things that other people would like, not everyone, but a lot of people would like to do, but never had the courage to do. And that sums it up more than anything else, really. And I think, for, he was I think that, for football he was... fans, that, that, that defines
2: what made him be able to do the other stuff. Yeah. I think. Mm. When you look at it, you think, yeah. well, it's exactly that that makes him uh, he's a huge, as well as his spectacular physical talents. And his athletic talent. That is part of a huge part of who he is. There's that word that we mentioned in the Maradona episode, you know, the bronca. Yeah, about, yeah. And that was kind of it. You know, that's what makes them better than people who are as good with the ball as other people.
0: Wasn't the other there. That, uh, this is it around. Go, oh, go on, Rob. No, go on, Gary, Go on. Well, it was a question for you, Rob, which is didn't he, at a very sort of at 21 or 22, who's up in front of a disciplinary panel, and didn't he just walk over to each of them? And uh when he was announced it was a three match ban, It's straight into their faces um did said some French word which is the equivalent of what Steve Bell always used to spell as O-U-A-N-Q-E Grav R E R E R, which was Uwankar, <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, was it? Was it? A, was it a disciplinary panel when he was at Marseille or at Monaco yeah, or whatever? That sounds familiar. There
1: so many, um, that does sound familiar. I don't know the details, but, but yeah, there are so many stories like that. Even the um, this commission or not commission, but this this disciplinary board they had for this thing, he apparently he said to them, there was three three of them, and he said. I'd also like to apologise to the prostitute who shared my bed last night. And it <laughs> apparently, went completely went completely over the heads. This was, I think, this was in David, you know, David Davis, the former FA. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. he did an autobiography, and it was in there. Um, and one, completely... the one other thing about Cantona is interesting. I think is that it wasn't expressed publicly, but it later was in books and various places. Is that pretty much all footballers agreed with him or certainly had sympathy with him? Um, And because obviously they had taken, in some cases, far worse abuse and were never kind of, never felt empowered to act, never felt they could act. And I think a lot of them enjoyed, I know Andy Townsend and Robbie Fowler are two examples of people who kind of later were, were, who praised him and said basically, yeah, good on you.
2: Well, I think it's two years this week or last week since Cyril Regis died. He's a perfect example mm. of somebody who maybe, really,
1: or, or you know, would
2: have liked to chin somebody at some point. Mm. Maybe I mean, different character, would, of course.
0: Wouldn't it have been just fantastic if, when Raheem Sterling was taking that corner at Chelsea, if uh, Cantona was <laughs> working for Eurosport or something, <laughs> took off the coat, of sheepskin, and just leapt into yeah. the crowd and absolutely hammered that bloke shouting at Raheem Sterling? I think. I think now these days there would have been. More or less universal praise, wouldn't there?
2: He's got a bit more uh, heft behind him now as well. I think, a bit more I think he has, too.
0: but but somebody should really do a Photoshop or something on that, or can he can they do deep fakes on it and uh, transpose the two and have that bloke? i was mean, as old as we are, for Christ's sake, screaming at Raheem Sterling and then get King Eric to uh, launch into him. God, I'd pay to see that on YouTube.
1: The reactions are interesting. Most were obviously critical, saying he had to be banned. Maybe I think a lot of people thought he'd never play in England again. But there were a few that were, um, in support of him. People like Richard Williams in the Independent. Even I remember Nick Hancock being on Fancy Football League, and he was normally kind of one of the most anti-United, um, mm. people around. And he basically said, "I thought it was absolutely brilliant. The Best thing that's happened this season." Um, Danny hilarious. Baker said, "Come on, it was
2: only a Palace fan."
1: Was it? Danny <laughs> yeah. Baker's famous line on it. And I, I
2: do think, yeah, I, I, I have nothing against people... Palace fans. That's just what Danny Baker said.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't I think... particularly have a problem with it. It's just, it, I think you're right. Just in the context of who Cantona was, it's just kind of just sums him
0: up, really. My feeling at the time was. Well, you can't have this because it's kind of vigilante justice and mm. what happens if somebody jumps out the crowd and then takes on the rest of them and then you know, yeah, you've and got, ideally you shouldn't you've go around everybody people on them can avoid it yeah. and you know we've only just got rid of the fences for Christ's sake, and they're at it with this kind of stuff um, going on and but I think I wasn't alone in, in that kind of condemnation, um, not perhaps outright condemnation, but certainly thinking don't be so bloody stupid eric you know um but then uh, a few days later stuff started emerging about what was actually said and a bit of the background of of uh, matthew simmons and i think things did change and i think a greater understanding that we can't expect to be sort of six feet away from people screaming abuse um including uh, racist abuse which may or may not have been the case uh, in, in this one but we, we, it was certainly around then and plenty of it and just to expect these players to just walk past like automata and I think that that as we learned more about in inverted as the victim I think Cantonar's stock rose in that time but I think another, another thing might be worth saying is that I don't think in this country another player has has reacted um, in anything like that way. I'm sure they must have done abroad, and of course they have in cricket, with uh, Sylvester Clark. I think famously threw a half brick back into the crowd after <laughs> yeah. it was thrown <laughs> throw at him. Um, and there's been plenty of, of stuff going on uh, like that in, uh, in cricket. But in football, in this country, maybe in lower leagues or something, I can't remember. Oh, there was a lower league player, wasn't there, who, who chinned a fan three or four years yeah. ago, I think. But there was one around that time actually. Big games.
1: He broke some. He, there was a lowly player around that time. I think he broke someone's jaw and got like a two week ban or something. I'm not sure. So, but I think you're right. I mean, I can think of examples of people like, um, Ian Wright and Nigel Winterman having rows with Arsenal fans, but but not not um any any kung fu kicks. Or f- That's the other thing about it that was so great. It wasn't just that he waded in. He waded in with a kung fu kick. Yeah, it's just like completely. And this is not like this is not ostentatious behaviour because it's so in the heat at the moment. Like how does your brain register to do that at that moment like that? It's not even like thought, oh this will make me look good. You, you had a while to plan it or anything. That's just how he instinctively reacted.
0: Yeah if you he yeah, was in a Monte Carlo casino, all the chips were in the middle
1: and Yeah, he just played the whole lot in one go. Good luck. So Tim. I'd love yeah, to be in. So there
2: you go. What a what a moment. And uh, Rob you're writing a piece for the website aren't you on this?
1: Yeah, m- most of which I've already <laughs> are full of details I've already just said, but yeah.
2: As you are listening, you can read along as well, everyone. But uh, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, so the al- final postscript to this was this Palace United FA Cup semi-final on the 9th of April. Uh, before the FA Cup semi-final between Palace and United at Villa Park on the 9th of April, Palace fan Paul Nixon was killed in a clash between the two rival sets of fans at a pub, which is tragic, obviously, um, the game finished a two-true draw. A replay was scheduled on the 12th of April. Many at Palace were appalled that the replay was rescheduled, given what had happened. And a lot of Palace fans boycotted the return fixture at Villa Park. Um, with Less than, eight, eight, than 18,000 watched the game. There was a minute silence for Nixon. Um, the FA gave strict instructions to both clubs to behave during the game, given the circumstances. Roy Keane was sent off for stamping on Garrett Southgate, which started another flare-up, uh, which Palace's Darren Patterson was also red-carded. So there's a lot of it. it I suppose if you kind to of swap, you know, we've we, we've had you know we've, we've made much hay from having a go at a Palace fan here. If you flip it over to the other side now and look at it from a Palace fan's point of view here, um, it's not something that's <coughs> very good for them, is it?
0: Well, we 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 forget that there were um fans who who and i mean around the world today i think in italy in particular there are the instances of, of of fan uh, violence leading to to deaths and we forget that there were not many but there were some around the 80s and and 90s and um you know everyone is a is an individual tragedy and you know it's felt more closely obviously by the uh, supporters of the club um, of which the the fan is the uh, the fan is the uh, the victim of this horrendous uh, violence, but you know it's not. <laughs> I I understand the Palace fans' uh, f- um concern about the uh, replay being s- uh, scheduled, but. You know, I think I think they were different days then and, and these things I'm not saying they were shrugged off, but there was a sense that the show must go on. You know, Grand Prix finished with with drivers who were dead in cars and it was just yeah. a, a, a kind of different time and, and I think that these days if we if we look back and of course this could excuse a, a million and one bad things and I'm not intending it to, but if we if we look back saying, Well, how would we react today to that inst in- instance or that situation, and then place our moral parameters from today on on yesterday. I think we we end up with something that 's useful, but we end up with something that that is not necessarily fair to those people who were around at the time and I know that can get into very dodgy areas and me too and all of that kind of stuff and i 'm not saying I would apply it in all instances but um it's it. It would have been more of a surprise, I think, had the had the match been called off or 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 delayed for a fortnight rather than, than going ahead. It's just the way things were, and I'm glad they're not like that now. But it very much was the way things were then.
1: Yeah, nothing much to add to that really. I think like completely different different times. I don't even remember it really being discussed as a credible option that would be pushed back. Uh, but you're right; it was only a year earlier that uh air to the center die, wasn't it uh, mm, yeah and you're absolutely right that it just yeah there's no point even you can't just right it or wrong it's just it what's culture of the time really uh, and, and there are so many parts of that that like the context of that that we forget or that are kind of lost in time so while you wouldn't like gary said you wouldn't necessarily expect things like that to happen now i want them to it's just normal then
0: i think one of the the big things uh, that's different is that um the advent of kind of smartphones and cameras and YouTube and stuff is that there's almost always footage of incidents or the surroundings and stuff like that. So it's much harder to kind of put them out of your mind. Um, and, you know, an incident, I think it, it happened some distance away from the ground and in a pub and so on. It's, it's, it almost feels like it's removed. I know it's not, but it feels like it's removed where now it would be much more immediate and the 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 power of the visual image, as opposed to the reported image, is enormous. And um, I think um, the fact that that everything is photographed or videoed these days um, has changed our, our culture um, and our attitudes towards uh, towards events.
2: Okay, so that is <laughs> quite a long but short entire season. We haven't talked about obviously. We will do a, full, we'll do a full episode on the actual football that happened this season because yeah. it was you know, quite the season, wasn't it, with Blackburn and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that kind of comes us through. Uh, we've gone on for quite a long time, so we'll leave our journey in for the next episode that we record because there's plenty of you for you to get your teeth into there. Listeners and ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.
1: Let, let's be honest. We'll leave it because I'm old and I've got a weak bladder.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <it's> indeed. Because... <laughs> yes, let's be honest. We're all desperate here. Yeah, we're all back teeth are floating. But... Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks. Thank you, Gary, for your contribution.
0: Thank you. A delight as ever. And thank you very much, Lee, for pulling it together with your usual professional prowess. <laughs> and thank Oy. you
2: very much, Rob. Cheers. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will speak to you all soon. Thank you very much.